Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. Thanks for braving the weather. You know, it's not snow or anything you had to brave, but I know it's much easier to pull that blanket back over your head and be like, it's warmer here than getting out of bed and coming to church today. So thanks for braving the weather. Uh, Today, sort of this um, transition week because we're ending our study in the book of Mark. This is the last chapter of Mark, but it's also the first week of Advent. And I wish I could say that when we began this journey in Mark 17 weeks ago, that I had looked all the way ahead and planned this out. I didn't. God is a much better planner than me, all right? But Mark 16 is the resurrection of Jesus. And could there be a better story for us to begin Advent with the theme of hope on than the resurrection of Jesus, right? So great job, God, planning this out, um, because not me. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open those up to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 is a short chapter. Um, So what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to read Mark 16, talk about Mark 16, and I'd like to end our time today talking a bit about hope. Um, as a way to, yeah, talk a bit about this theme for Advent, but also send us out this week with some thoughts about the sermon that our lives are writing for the world around us. So Mark 16, verse 1, starts this way. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, Bought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And we're gonna stop there. With the coming of the Passover, we said this last week, there was very little time. Jesus had been crucified right before the Passover, and with the little time left between when Jesus died and when the Passover was to begin, 
His body had been taken and placed into a tomb. Passover came, and with the observance of Passover, no work could be done. And so as soon as Passover had ended with the first early morning light, these women get up, they purchase everything they need to care for the body. They want to anoint the body, and they head to the tomb. And there's one big question on their mind. They know that there's gonna be this big rock across the entrance to the tomb. Tombs that have been cut in rock, there would be a big groove in front of the tomb, and there'd be a large rock that would be moved into that groove. And that rock could be as big as a man is tall or as small as the wheel on the side of a cart. But regardless of that, a stone of that size would be impossible for these women to move by themselves. And so the, the pressing question on their mind is, how in the world are we gonna get to the body to anoint it properly? And so when they get to the tomb, they are surprised to see the stone is rolled away. And so then they cautiously move into the tomb. And they're even more surprised to see that Jesus is missing. And instead, there's this man dressed in all white robes saying, Jesus is risen. He's not even here. And so the man encourages them to go and tell the others. And, and I'll come back to this in a second, but thing to note about Mark's rendition of this, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus. He's risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That's special. Singles out Peter in that moment. We'll come back to that in a second. You know, the existence of Christianity, the existence of Christianity is some of the best proof we have for the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ hadn't risen, we wouldn't have Christianity. It would have just been another dead body added to the list of dead bodies that Rome had crucified. Added to the list of, of dead insurrectionists. Added to the list of people who had gone up against the Roman government. People who had gone up against the established religious uh, leaders of the time. And yet something is different about this one. Something is very different about this particular case. So different, in fact, that an entire religious movement is started because something is different. I mean, think about it. What we know from the other Gospels, if you've read some of the other Gospels, if you've been around church long enough to hear some of the stories, we know that the disciples split up. Some of them went back to fishing. That's what they knew, right? They went back to fishing. Some of them got with another and they, they left town. They went walking together to another town. They parted ways from one another because they thought it was done. They thought it was over. And why wouldn't you? Your rabbi had been killed, crucified, in the worst ways publicly in front of you. So if Jesus had died and stayed dead, we would have heard no more. 
that the disciples would have gone their separate ways. They would have gone back to fishing. They would have gone to other towns. And Jesus' name would have been lost to history with the hundreds and hundreds of others just like him. Except there is no one like him. The existence of Christianity is some of the very best proof that we have for the resurrection itself. And so when we read this part of the story, and the women come to an empty tomb, a man dressed in white, we can presume is probably an angel, because in some of the other gospels, that's exactly what the gospel writers write, an angel is there. You can sit back and you can scoff at the story, and you can think, this is silly. But you also have to reckon with the fact that it is 2,000 years later and we're still telling the story. It's 2,000 years later and millions of people are still following Jesus Christ. It's 2,000 years later and we have had miracle after miracle. It's 2,000 years later and some of the very best proof we have of the resurrection is the fact that Christianity exists today. So let me go back to this line that the man dressed in white says. He's not here. He has risen. He will meet up with you. Go tell the disciples and Peter. A special message for Peter. How incredible must that have been for Peter? Put yourself in Peter's shoes just for a moment. And I'm sure you've been asked by... 50 preachers and 150 different sermons at some point in your life to put yourself in Peter's shoes. But just for this moment, do it one more time with me. Because Peter is the guy. He's the guy who always speaks up. He's the guy who's willing to have the wrong answer. He's the guy who puts his foot in his mouth. He's the guy who's willing to defend Jesus by whipping out his sword when the soldiers come to arrest him. He's the guy that gets rebuked by Jesus when he's wrong. He is the guy, the only one that shows up at Jesus' sham of a trial. He's the guy who gets accused of knowing Jesus and he still rejects Jesus. And upon that third rejection, he hears the rooster crow and he remembers that Jesus predicted this whole thing and Mark records that he just breaks down and begins crying in that moment. How empty and broken must he feel knowing all that he has been through with his rabbi. His rabbi is gone. His rabbi is dead. This whole thing that he believed in so earnestly has fallen apart. And now there's this message from, from beyond the grave. Go tell the disciples and Peter. How special is it that Peter is specifically included in this? Part of the character of Jesus is that he has always considered the remorse that Peter underwent more so than the wrong that Peter did to Jesus. Every step of the way, that's part of the interplay, the relationship that Peter and Jesus had. Jesus always considered the remorse of Peter more so than the wrong that Peter did to him. 
he loved him in the way that a father loves his son. My son, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way we do it. We have a better way than that. Put away your sword. I'm going to fix his ear this time, Peter. I'm not going to be here the next time. That's not the way we do it, Peter. Put away your sword. Those who live by the sword, Peter, die by the sword. Put away your sword, Peter. Jesus always considered the remorse of Peter. Jesus is always far more eager to comfort the, the repentant sinner than to punish the sin. That's something that we all should remember because we also live in this world where as Christians, we seem eager to punish the sinner. We seem eager to focus on the sin. I just spent some time downstairs this morning in a Sunday school class where we're studying James. And one of the verses that we ended on was discussing how it is not our job to sit in the seat of judgment. It's not our job because we have no right to sit there. Because if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken all of the law. Jesus is eager to comfort the repentant sinner. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are hungry. And I will give you rest. He is eager for those who will come. Far more eager than punishing the sin. Does that mean that we get a free pass with sin? Of course. It does not mean that. But he is looking for those who are repentant. And in Peter, he finds that. And so I think it is special that this angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And it is worth us noting. In a passage at the end of Mark that is so short, it is worth us noting that Peter's name is lifted out because it could just as easy be my name. And if you are not willing to say that, then you have humble work to do. Now, I wanna go on and I wanna read verse nine. But in your Bible, there is probably a line or something that says something to the extent of the earliest manuscripts don't have these other verses. Right? And we find something like that in a couple different places in the Bible. And so I wanted to just make note of that. What does that mean? Well, what's up with that? Um, it could mean a couple different things. Um, could mean that it's lost. Right? So we have found a bunch of different manuscripts that date to different times in history of books like Mark. And maybe... The oldest ones we've found, the end part just broke off. It's lost to time. It became dust. All right? So we just don't have it. And so they're just being really honest to say, look, the oldest ones we found, they don't have these last few verses. All right. So maybe they broke off and they're lost to time. It could also mean that when Mark wrote the book, he ended at verse 8. So the oldest manuscripts of Mark 
end at verse 8 because that's where he stopped writing. And a little later on, well-meaning Christians added on the last few verses that we're going to read. And they were like, look, there's some really important things that we should add on to Mark because they matter. And Mark didn't quite get all the things that we think he should have gotten. And there are some important things that are in some of the other Gospels that should be on the end of this Gospel. So let's make sure we put those on. And that could be exactly what happened as well. Now, one of the things that I want to remind you of is I think I told you this uh, when we were in Mark chapter 1, is there's a lot of people that think that the Gospel of Mark was meant to be acted out, kind of like a play, right? And so that cliffhanger ending, if it ended at Mark 8, that would be a, a pretty cool ending to a play. So if this was like an early tool for evangelism, where you went somewhere and you had a narrator who was reading this, and you had a bunch of people who were acting it out, and then you ended it with the scene where the women went to the tomb and they found an angel there instead of the body of Jesus, and he, the angel was like, hey, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell people and tell Peter, end scene. Whoa, that's a pretty cool way to end a play, and your audience might be like, all right, I got some questions, I got some questions, and suddenly you have a whole bunch of really cool conversations that you can use for evangelism. And that is a, a very distinct possibility as to the way this gospel was being used very early on. So there's a good chance that that's exactly what was going on. I don't know, I have no idea. I've only been on earth for 40 years, right? This is way older than that. I'm just letting you know, that's why that thing's written in there. But what I do know is we have these other verses. So let's read these other verses and see what they say. Verse nine, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his work by the signs that accompanied it. So this brings us to a close. And if you think about it, these verses help us kind of, they mirror the other Gospels as well. If you look at the other Gospels, you'll see a bit more specific stories about how Jesus appeared. You'll see that Jesus appeared to two disciples who were on the road walking together. You'll see a more specific story about how Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden. You'll see that Jesus appears in the upper room to disciples who are gathered together, right? 
And so Jesus appears in these places, and we see more specific. These are just kind of like a shortened version of those stories in one place. Um, what I do want to focus on, though, is what does Christ commit to the church? What does he say? Hey, church, this is what you should be doing. And as I look at the last section, sort of 15 to the end of the, the passage here, he says the church is responsible for preaching, healing. There's a power that goes with that. And then a reminder that you're never alone. That's a, it's a commitment that he gives his followers. All right? And in, in, in this story, it feels like he's giving it to them as individuals. He's giving it to them as his disciples. And as we read it together today, 2,000 years later, it's him giving it to us as a church, as a community. We are his disciples. We are his followers. So it's to us as individuals, but it is to us as a community as well. So we are called to preach. And that's not just my job. That's yours as well. You might think, I'm, I'm not a preacher, Nick. Okay. But you preach with your life. Right? How you live and talk and walk and how you carry yourself, what you do and don't say, that's preaching. You preach a message every day, all right? You're preaching. You are called to tell the story of the good news. You are a herald of Jesus Christ. Are you heralding the good news? Because that is your call. You can herald bad news. You can herald news, but you're called to herald good news. So are you. Jesus calls his followers to healing. How are we doing at that? And I don't mean that in a, in a condemning sort of way. I don't have like a answer I'm looking for. I just mean that in sort of a rhetorical way. I mean that as you, as you carry yourselves every day. How are you doing with healing? Right, we're called to be folks that bring health to the body, to the spirit. Is that who we are? When we enter into a conversation, is that who our family is, our family unit When we enter the room, when people think about in, inviting us over, do they think, oh yeah, that's a person that brings healing to the body and the spirit? Or do they think, do we, do we have to bring, do we have to invite that person over? <laughs> how, how, do we, how are we doing with being people of healing, you know? See, all, all of this calling that's placed upon us by Christ, uh, it depends on a power. And, and, and Jesus talks about that with his disciples. We're filled with a power. It doesn't depend on a power we possess. It, it doesn't depend on our own strength. You're not gonna go to the gym and work out the muscles and suddenly you're gonna be a, a better preacher with your life. You're gonna be able to bring more healing to the body and the soul because you worked out the right muscles. It's, it's not about that. It's, it's about living a life it depends more on Christ because your life looks more like 
Christ. Our relationship is solid with Christ. Our connection is solid with Christ. So how is your relationship with Christ? How's your connection with Christ? Do you spend time with him? Because if you don't, that says a lot right then and there. Think about, think about a marriage. If you don't spend time with your spouse, then that relationship's gonna be more on the rocks. And when the time comes to depend on it, when you need, on, need it, are you gonna be able to? When he talks about drinking poison, when he talks about picking up deadly snakes, I mean, hey, is that possible? Sure, anything's possible with God. Do I recommend that you go out today and try and find a poisonous snake and pick it up or go mix yourself up a batch of cyanide and drink it because you've got a solid connection with Christ? Absolutely not. I'm gonna make that really clear. I said not, okay? And that's not because our faith isn't strong enough. That's not the case here. Because there are churches that exist in the world, well, even in the United States today, where they do something called snake wrangling, okay? And you can check it out, do the research, and find out that those pastors get bit and die. Um, It's not about faith. What is being talked about here, though, is a reliance on a power that is beyond ourself. It is. And we can look at stories in the New Testament where Paul did get bit by a snake and didn't die, right? Those are miracles, Miracles still happen today. Miracles might happen to you, but that doesn't mean the exact same miracle that happens to you is gonna exactly happen to me either, okay? But there is a power that we share as followers of Christ. As long as we are giving the time needed to our relationship with Christ, that is what we need to focus on. Not not focusing on drinking poison and picking up snakes. Focus on strengthening your relationship. The last thing that Jesus says here, though, too, is that as his disciples follow him, and as they do, they did follow him, the disciples do this work, they preach that word, they do those healings, and Christ confirmed it by being with them. We're not alone in this work that we're given. We're not alone in this work that we're given. Like, we're not alone. That's really pretty incredible. We're not alone in this work that we're given. You're not alone. When God calls on you to do something, when God gives you, like this word this morning that I'm telling you is we wrap up the book of Mark and you hear essentially the great commission. Go, preach, and teach the very things that Christ has preached and taught to you. He's promising that you're not alone in those things. And as you do those things, it will be confirmed that you're not alone. That's fantastically incredible. As long as you have the faith to follow him in those things, he will continue to confirm that you're not alone. That should give you (laughs) hope. 
is incredible. There's a verse in um, 2 Corinthians that says, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The brightest glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. That verse gives me hope because that wasn't always the case. They didn't always have that letter from Paul. They didn't always have that word from Paul. Imagine a world before Jesus. We've talked about this as we studied the book of Mark. A world before Jesus, a world before the Messiah. Like, imagine, put yourself in that position where you have been told by your parents and grandparents and religious teachers that God would be sending his servant someday. A Messiah will come someday. And all you just have to do is wait. And wait, and wait, and wait. Would you keep the faith? Would you keep the faith? Would you wait? What if you got old? What if the the pepper started to get more and more salt? What if you got old and you had children and, and then you had some grandchildren and you, you pass these stories along to your children and your grandchildren and, and now it's not just people telling you, just wait, it's, Messiah's coming, just wait. Now, now you are telling people, you're telling your own people, your own children, your own grandchildren, the Messiah is coming, just wait, just wait, he's coming, I promise, he's coming, just Keep waiting. And the world just seems to get worse, right? It gets worse and worse. Oh, there's more rebellions. There's, there's more massacres. And, and, and religious folks, they just they get more power. And they tell you to do this and this. And the more things they tell you to do, the less you can measure up. And it just is more frustrating. Roman armies come in and they conquer more. And then... And now, you know, they just don't conquer. They kill and destroy, and they can tell you to do whatever they want. No one can stand up against them. They're the superpower of the day. Nothing can stop them. You're surrounded by soldiers. You're co-governed by Roman governors and religious leaders, and really, you're just stuck in between them both. Man, if it's not the the soldiers from Rome, it's the guilt from the religious leaders. So would you still believe? Would you still believe that there's a Messiah coming? After all these generations of promises, all these generations of people telling you, just wait, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. Would your children and grandchildren even take you seriously when they find out how long you've been waiting? And then you just gave them the same party line, just wait, just wait, Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. I mean, let's be honest. How different is it for a lot of you? You were expecting Jesus to return anytime. 
You've been told for 50 years Jesus is coming back. Some of you guys even had a date. Date came and went. Jesus didn't come back. You believed. For 50 years you've been saying Jesus is coming back. Any day, any day. And you got old. And you had children. And grandchildren. And you've been telling them Jesus is coming back any time. Still coming. And now you watch your children and your grandchildren, and they don't take the faith seriously the way you take the faith. And you're worried. I'm worried they don't take the faith seriously the way I take the faith. It's hard to hold up hope when you keep waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, some of you guys know exactly what it feels like to be waiting on the Messiah as a first century Jew. Worrying what your grandkids and your children believe. So what do you do? You go back to this thing. You go back to some of the stories you were raised on. You hold on to the hope. Because here's what gave you hope. These stories. You believed. You waited because you believed in these stories. And you wonder, too, as we come up to Christmas, you wonder, what in the world made those first century Jews willing to wait for generations and generations and hundreds of years? Why would they wait? I wish I could just go ask them. I wish I could ask them. What's their thought on this verse, Nick? The glory of God is seen the most in the face of Jesus Christ. What do they think of that? Well, if you asked a first century Jew, they would tell you, we can't see the face of God. That's what they would say. And they would, they would take you back to Exodus. They tell you a story from the book of Exodus. Exodus 33 has this story about how God was telling the Israelites to go into the promised land, right? And he tells them to go into the promised land, but God is so angry at them because they have been acting awful, poor behavior. We've all been there. We have kids or nephews or grandkids that have had poor behavior. God, God is essentially saying, you know what? You guys go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you, all right? I'm so mad, I'm not going with you. I'm gonna send an angel ahead of you. He's gonna clear the way. You guys go in, but I'm not going with you. God is like, I love you, but I don't like you right now. And we've been there. You know what that feels like. I love you, but I don't like you right now. So go, right? Go away. Go play somewhere else, okay? So Moses goes to God, and he's like, look, God, if you don't go with us, how will the rest of the world know that we're your people? How, how will people know that you are our God? How will the world know that, that you're pleased with us if you don't go with us? And God's like, okay, Moses, all right, I'll go with you. Because Moses, I'm pleased with you. Moses, Maybe I'm a little upset with the rest of them. 
but I know you, Moses. I know you, Moses. I know you by name, Moses. And any time in the Old Testament when we start talking about names, it's like this really intimate moment. So Moses and God are having this really intimate moment. And God is essentially saying to Moses, I might be really upset with how the rest of them are acting, but Moses, I love you. I know you. I'm glad you came to me because of our relationship. All right, I'll go with you guys. And so Moses, being in this intimate moment, he's like, all right, God, I want to see your face. God, show me your glory. And the, the Hebrew word there for, for glory is uh, kavod. And it means um, glory, honor, beauty, and splendor. God, show me your kavod. And God says, Moses, no one can ever see my face. If you see my face, you die. I'll have compassion on who I have compassion on. I'll have mercy on who I have mercy on, but no one can ever see my face and live. So here's what I'll do, Moses. There's a cleft in the rock. I'll pass you by. I'm gonna cover you up with my hand, and then I'm gonna move right by you. And the best I can do is let you see my back. All right? It's the best thing I can do for you, Moses, but I can't let you see my face. All right? So I'll cover you. And um, if, if you kind of break it down, literally, God uses these two words that I want to tell you about this morning. One of the words you know, God says, I'm going to let my tov pass you by. Tov is a word that we talked about at the beginning of this year. Tov is a word that means good. Goodness, wellness, fairness, joy. He says, after my tov passes you by, then my kavod will pass you by. First goodness, then glory. First goodness, then wellness, fairness, joy. So think about this. God says to Moses, first my goodness, then my glory. And all of this is in response to Moses saying, I, I just want to see you. God, you see me. You see me. You just said, I see you. I will come with you guys because I see you. And how many of us have grown up in a church where we have heard so many times, God knows you. God sees your heart. God knows what you want before you say it. God knows you in and out all the way through. And how many of us have yearned and wanted to have that same relationship with God? I want, God knows me. Okay, great. I want to know God too. And that's where, that's where Moses is at. God says to Moses, I, I see you. I know you. I know you by name. I will come because I love you. And Moses says, okay, so I want to see your face then, God. And God's like, you can't. But here's what I will do. Here's what I will do. First my glory, then my goodness. That's what I can do. Can you understand something as God's glory without first understanding it as his goodness? Think about the things that you've been through in your life. 
Think about the, the great things. The things that are easy for you to name as good. Can you understand something as glory to God without first understanding it as good? And now think about something that's been really hard. Can you understand something as glory to God without first understanding it as good? Man, if we could be a people that went through hardship and tragedy, that went through the hard stuff, that went through the loss and difficulty, but still could call it God's joy and God's glory, man, even when we feel far from goodness, fairness, and joy, man, what a sermon we would be writing to the world then. What kind of hope might we be giving to the rest of the world if we wrote that kind of sermon for the rest of the world to see? Moses wants to see God's face. Moses wants to know God the way that God knows him. And God says, the best I can do for you, Moses, is let you see where I've been. So first, goodness, wellness, and fairness, tov, and then honor, glory, splendor, and beauty, kavod. And so when we see these sorts of things in the world around us, when we know these things, when we feel these things, when we notice those things in the world around us, when we see the Spirit moving in those places, that's when we know God has been in those places. When is the last time that you were in a place, that you were in a group of people, that you were with somebody in a conversation and you saw goodness, wellness, fairness, joy, beauty, glory, honor, splendor? Was it when you heard that somebody was healed from something? They got the diagnosis that they were cancer-free? Was that the last time you heard that? That you saw that? You felt that? Was it when you got up early enough and you saw the sunrise for the first time in a really long time? Was it the last time you had a good date with your spouse and you held their hand and you felt those things and you said, oh, my God is right here. See, when we feel, know, see the spirit moving in these places and fairness, goodness, joy, beauty, all of those things are present. That is the moment that we see where God has just been. The spirit of God is moving in those places. That is what Moses was allowed to see. God said, Moses, you can't see my face. No one can see my face. The best thing that I can do is hide you in the cleft in the rock. I will cover your eyes. I will move past you. And what you will be allowed to see is where I have been. And where has God been? God has been where his tov and kavod has been. Fairness, honor, goodness, wellness, splendor, beauty. Are our eyes open to these things? Are we looking for these things? Because this is the time of the year when they're most on display. Are your eyes even willing to see them? These are the things that the world is looking for for hope. Are we willing to see them and are we willing to name them 
as where God has been. Because that, that would be enough to give me hope. That would be enough. That was probably enough to give Moses hope. But that's not where the story ends. Because generations and generations after Moses, a child was born unto us, Emmanuel, the Messiah. The waiting stopped. The waiting stopped. A child was born. And the glory of God, the honor, the glory, the splendor, the beauty, is most clearly on display in the face of that child, Jesus Christ. Where there is the glory of God, there is also the goodness of God, wellness, fairness, and joy. So now you and I, we have one great leg up on the first century follower of God. And that is, we're not hidden in the cleft on the rock. Our eyes are not covered. We are not just simply looking for where God has been. We're not trailing after. We get to see the face of Jesus because we follow a risen Lord. We see the goodness and glory of God. We come face to face with Jesus as he commands us to follow in his footsteps. This isn't just news. This is the good news. This is the news that we're commanded to take to the rest of the world. This is what we are called to preach. This is what we are given to heal with. This is what gives us the power that we need. And if we take it, if we use it, we are never alone in it. Are you with me? Amen. And amen. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.